This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton, and today we'll hear from young advocates clamoring for a faster transition to cleaner energy. Students in many grade and high schools learn the basics of how burning fossil fuels is driving rising temperatures and rising seas. Now some students are taking that knowledge into the streets and into the courts, not content to wait until they're running companies or other organizations in a decade or two. They're pressing for more action now to protect their future and ours. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us three leaders. James Coleman is a senior at South San Francisco High School and an action fellow with Alliance for Climate Education, a group that presents climate assemblies in high schools in Boston, Raleigh, North Carolina, Las Vegas, New York City, and the San Francisco Bay Area. Lou Helmuth is deputy director of Our Children's Trust, an organization that is suing the federal government on behalf of 21 young people around the country who claim to have been harmed by climate disruption. The suit asked the federal government to come up with a climate repair plan and cut carbon pollution and stabilize the climate that supports our economy and our lifestyle. Karina McWilliams is a student at South Eugene High School and an active member of Earth Guardians and other environmental organizations in Eugene, Oregon. Please welcome them to Climate One. James Coleman, you were inspired by Standing Rock. Tell us how Standing Rock galvanized you and brought you more into environmental advocacy. Uh, There are people in Standing Rock, native people, who are protesting for their right to clean water. And they were met with rubber bullets, mace, pepper spray, and high-pressure water hoses in freezing temperatures. And these are human rights violations happening right before our eyes in our country. People who just want to have clean water are being jeopardized by having oil pipelines run in their backyards. And it's scary because this doesn't happen anywhere in the country. And what did you do about it? You, you saw that on TV, right, or something? You saw it on the news, and then what did you do about it? With the help of ACE, I decided Alliance to... Alliance for Climate Education. Right. We started a supply drive at uh, my school to raise money and any supplies that we could send over to North Dakota and help the water protectors. Okay. And then, uh, but you weren't able to go to, uh, uh, to Standing Rock, would you, if you could? Um, I definitely would, but I don't think my mom would be okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Karina McWilliams, you led uh, some efforts on a climate ordinance in your hometown. Tell us about that. So the Climate Recovery Ordinance was passed in Eugene in 2014, and it was basically this law saying that Eugene had to cut its carbon emissions um, in half by 2030. Um, And the issue with the bill was that it lacked... um, specific legislation on when city officials had to get um, certain deadlines done and accomplished. 
So what my club and I did is we went uh, this past year, and we still are going every two weeks, and testified to the city council, um, basically telling them why climate change mattered to us and how their uh, action in city government directly affected our futures. Um, and it ended up getting like some progress done. They passed a 350 carbon budget last June with a unanimous vote, so that was really cool. So you're a teenager, you're, you're a junior in high school, which means you're, what, 16 or 17, and um, got a lot going on, and every two weeks you're going to boring council hearings <laughs> at the city government? You know, tell us a little more. Why, why, why are you doing that? How did you get into that? Uh, well, I got into it through Professor Mary Christina Wood. Um, my co-leaders and I, uh, Wes Georgieve and Sage Fox at the time, um, now Alden McWayne because Sage graduated, but... Um, she was like, you guys should go down and testify to, this, to the city council because this bill was passed, and like now you know, there's just a huge lack of action. Um, and at first, I was like really nervous to go down and testify because it's public speaking and it <laughs> wasn't initially my favorite. But um, yeah, the, uh, that's how I got into it. And then uh, the process is you go to the city council meetings, you like write your testimony, maybe it's like a page, and then you go up and read it in front of the city council for about two or three minutes. Um, and then it's over, and it's like, it's quick, but it's super effective, because if you keep going every two weeks, then they're either going to, like, get tired, tired of your face, or, like, <laughs> actually hear what you're trying to tell them. Um, yeah, it's effective. James, how about you? How did you, you know, you're, um, how did you get into, uh, and then we'll, we'll go to Lou, but how did you get into, before Standing Rock, was there any environmental awareness you know, in, your, in your life, in your family? I was a member of my school's Earth Club since freshman year, uh-huh. and there we participated in events like uh, beach cleanups, uh, school recycling, and hiking trips. Uh-huh. And I eventually applied for vice president in my junior year, and there I organized events to Sucho Stewards, which is a little mini forest in the middle of San Francisco, where we removed the invasive invasive species of ivy and replanted native species to um, help the forest biodiversity. And our Earth Club's advisor um, brought to me this program called ACE, and I applied and got in. Action Fellow of the Alliance for Climate Education. So, Lou Helmuth, let's talk about this suit. Set, us up for, uh, set it up for us. Uh, what's this suit doing? What's it, what's it aimed to do? So I'm the uh, deputy director at Our Children's Trust, and we work with young people around the globe to, uh, to advance their interest in preserving the atmosphere and natural systems through legal action and public education. So we support young people in bringing lawsuits, including this one that we're going to talk about centrally, which is a lawsuit that was brought by 21 young people in the United States. They're from all over the United States. Florida and Colorado and Oregon and New York and uh, all over the U.S. And they sued in 2015 President Obama and the Obama administration. So the Department of the Interior, the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, the Department of Agriculture, and the secretaries of those departments. And they are accusing the federal government of violating their constitutional right to life, liberty, and property. They're also accusing the federal government of not preserving the public trust. We all need to share in our our common resources, and we have to make sure that we don't use them up today so that they're not available for future generations. We have to balance that out. 
Well, we don't think that the federal government has done that with respect to the atmosphere. Instead, we've destroyed the atmosphere. We've got over 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide. So we brought this lawsuit, or these young people brought this lawsuit, um, to uh, ask the federal government to prepare a science-based national climate recovery plan that will bring carbon dioxide from over 400 parts per million to below 350 parts per million by the year 2100. So we want the court to tell the government that it needs to do this. We know that scientifically, if we can achieve that, that we will stabilize our climate system. So that's the nature of the lawsuit. Let's meet one of the plaintiffs in this lawsuit. Her name is Victoria Barrett from White Plains, New York. Victoria claims she has become emotionally distressed by the increase in superstorms in the Northeast, including Hurricane Sandy, which impacted her and her family. Rising temperatures have also made her allergies worse, which limits her outdoor times. Let's listen to Victoria Barrett. My name is Victoria Barrett. I'm 17 years old. I live in New York, and I'm a youth climate activist who's been fighting on the front lines since about my freshman year. I'm a youth plaintiff on a climate lawsuit against the U.S. federal government because they're taking direct action to put my future at risk by allowing for the extensive use of fossil fuels and development of fossil fuels worldwide. It's the 21 youth plaintiffs versus the entire federal government. A huge conglomerate of the fossil fuel industry is also signed on as a co-defendant. Climate change is an issue that's facing our entire world, but the results of it are disproportionately going to impact people my age. And so that's why we as young people are deciding we're going to fight now and not wait until we're adults like society has told us we need to be to have power or decision making. Our society at some point in the 20th century decided that we wanted to be dependent on fossil fuels. And at a time when we wanted to develop and grow, that made sense. But now we're at a point where that decision to use fossil fuels and depend on fossil fuels is putting us all at risk. Even though it's a lawsuit, you know, something you could win or lose, I feel like no what happens, we've still created a precedent for other young people in this country and other young people around the world to realize that they can force power to listen to them. Our generation doesn't care who you are or where you're from. We just care if you have good ideas or if you have bad ideas or if you're for change or if you're not for change. I'm just a normal 17-year-old. I just saw something that I didn't like and saw something that I didn't understand and decided that I was going to give myself a platform no matter what negativity we hear about ourselves. That was Victoria Barrett, one of 21 young Americans suing the federal government about climate change. Uh, Lou Helmuth, tell us about some of the other plaintiffs in this, in the 21. Uh, just super cool young people with, you know, just incredible passion to save the planet and to do the right thing. Uh, Victoria is one from New York City. Uh, the youngest plaintiff is now 10 years old. Levi, he lives in Atlantic, Florida, um, where his beaches are now essentially gone and his property is threatened. It's a tiny little barrier reef island on which he lives. Uh, Jaden is a young woman from uh, Louisiana who has uh, experienced a 1,000-year flood and multiple 500-year floods in the last year. 
Um, her home was destroyed in August, flooded sewage, you know, backing up. Uh, they're starting to rebuild now. They've torn out the carpet and everything. And just a couple of weeks ago, Jaden uh, moved it back into her room. Um, but the whole family is not yet back into their home. Uh, there's uh, the eldest plaintiff and the name plaintiff is Kelsey Juliana. Uh, the name of the case now is Juliana v. Trump. Um, and uh, Kelsey is a 21-year or 20-year-old uh, sophomore at the University of Oregon, um, and she is also a plaintiff on a state case that is a similar sort of action, asking the state of Oregon to enact uh, a, a similar sort of plan. So there are a wide variety of young people, all with incredible passions and power, a lot like James and Karina here, um, and what I think are probably like a lot of you, just you know, regular folks, but with uh, a real mission. And the court case goes to trial maybe uh, later this year. President Obama tried to block it. President Trump tried to block it. So tell us the, the, you know, the state of the game. State of the game. Uh, so yeah, the judge told us uh, back in November, well, let me, let me back up just before then. So we brought this lawsuit and uh, the young people secured an, an amazing preliminary ruling in November, just two days after the election of President Trump, where the court found for the first time in history that the United States Constitution guarantees, I have goosebumps all over my body right now, the United States Constitution guarantees a constitutional right to a climate system capable of sustaining human life. That's what these 21 young people secured. The court also found that the federal government does have that public trust responsibility that I talked about a little earlier to manage our natural resources and the atmosphere to make sure that it's available both for present and future generations. And the court also found that the remedy that the kids are seeking, the court order that the federal government enact a science-based climate recovery plan on a national level, is a legitimate remedy for a constitutional violation of the constitutional right that was determined for the first time on November 10th, 2016. So right now where we are is the case is progressing to trial. We are scheduled, the last we heard from the court was that they, they want to have the trial in late 2017. And what that means is that we will bring evidence about what the government has done to perpetuate climate change and to cause climate change and to allow climate change to run away uncontrolled. And we will also demonstrate that these young people are harmed by the actions of the federal government and that this remedy can fix the problem of climate change. The uh, Trump administration has just filed for what's called an interlocutory appeal. Um, and what that means is they've asked for, before we go to trial on this case, they want to take the case up from the federal district court for the District of Oregon to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals here in San Francisco to appeal that decision that I just told you about, that there's a constitutional right to a climate system capable of sustaining human life and a few others of the preliminary rulings. So the case is, you know, is, is hot and moving forward. Um, there's a lot that's happening. We, the young people, are engaged in what's called discovery, trying to learn about all the facts of what the government knew and didn't know and how the fossil fuel industry was involved in those decisions. Karina McWilliams, you are an indirect participant in this, in this suit uh, through a Earth Guardians organization. What's it mean to you? What do you feel is at stake? Um, 
our our futures. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like he said, uh, the kids are suing the government over their right to life, liberty, and property, and that's exactly what is at stake. Like, it's not only, um, you know, my my health and you know my generation. It's all generations after that. Like, this isn't this isn't just going to affect today's people. It's going to affect you know. Uh, the health and safety of the entire world, really, you know, from now on. And how does that make you feel? And how do, about your peers at school? Do they also worry about this, uh, this concern? Or, and and how, yeah, how does it affect you day to day? Day to day? I would say that <laughs> a lot of the work I do um, for my climate activism club, it, it uh, takes a lot of my time and a lot of my um, energy um, because I would rather be doing that than anything else. Uh, I think it's like the most important thing in my life. I've kind of made this con- uh, conscious decision to dedicate, you know, everything, um, every decision that I make, like uh, to mitigating climate change, because to me, it's the most important thing that I can do um, with my time and energy. James Coleman, you, uh, the Alliance for Climate Education that you're part of does a fabulous presentation in high schools. I've seen it. Uh, so if you were to explain kind of the basics of climate science uh, to someone who, who didn't understand it, how would you explain that? I explain it as right now a lot of companies, uh, factories, governments are polluting the earth in a way where they are putting lots of carbon in the form of CO2 in the atmosphere. And that causes what we call a greenhouse effect, where the sun's rays come to Earth, bounce back up, and once it hits the CO2, it bounces back down. And that causes the Earth to act as an oven, warming the Earth more and more, and that causes climate change, where um, climate is different, more extreme, so you get more floods, more storms, um, hotter weather and colder weather in places that usually don't have that. I've interviewed lots of scientists, and that's one of the clearest <laughs> explanations I've, I've heard. Uh, yeah. The earth as an oven. Uh, there's also a time lag. Explain the time lag. So the effects of climate change that we are feeling today result from the emissions that were from the 1970s. And the emissions that we are emitting today will not be felt until 40 years down the road. And this is something that, that really displaces a sense of immediacy in this issue. Um, people look at climate change and say, oh, this will affect me 20 years from now. They don't feel the changes today. But it really makes it a lot more intimidating, a lot scarier to deal with that is coming down the road. That time lag, yeah, it's kind of like, oh, off in the future. Uh, Lou Helmuth, the U.S. government realized starting in the 1950s that the greenhouse effect, burning fossil fuels, was going to cause problems. Tell us that story from the 50s today, the gradual realization of the greenhouse effect that James just explained. Yeah, unfortunately, it's not really a gradual realization. It was back in the 50s, our federal government knew that burning fossil fuels emitted carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And by 1965, um, during the President Johnson, Lyndon Johnson administration, there is, is White House reports and memoranda talking about the apocalyptic effects of continuing to burn fossil fuels and exp- extend the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. 
Um, that was so evident to our government in the 60s and 70s that soon thereafter, um, a number of members of Congress asked the Environmental Protection Agency to explore this growing crisis. Um, and in 1990 and 1991, the Environmental Protection Agency produced a pretty comprehensive report, very clearly saying that we have to cap emissions at 350, 350 parts per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We can't go above that. This was 1990. We, we knew that. And, and they came up with you know, the, the framework of a plan for what we need to do to make sure that at that point, when we were still below 350 parts per million, we didn't exceed 350 parts per million. Well, I, I don't know what happened with that report, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence that anything happened with that report. It's not just me who doesn't know what happened with that report. Nothing happened with that report. And instead, we've had nothing but continued perpetuation and subsidy of the fossil fuel industry, the permitting of fossil fuel infrastructure all around our country. The Dakota Access Pipeline is an example of that. Um, It's just more and more fossil fuels, despite the knowledge that we can't exceed a level that we're already beyond and that we're putting it on the backs of young people and future generations. And the fossil fuel industry has joined this case. Uh, you are not suing the fossil fuel industry. You're suing the federal government, but they have been allowed to be join the case as, I believe, interested parties. So tell us that aspect. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. Um, Right after the case was filed, the fossil fuel industry, through their trade associations, the American Petroleum Institute, the National Association of Manufacturers, and the American Petrochemicals Manufacturers Association, um, asked the court if they could participate to defend against this case because they said the young people's case is extraordinary and a direct threat to our business. So... You know, it, it's kind of, it, it's great in our, in our constitutional justice system if, if Karina and I have a lawsuit against each other, but one of you in the audience is directly impacted by that and you can show that impact, the court under certain limited circumstances will allow you to participate in that case. And that's what the court did in this case. They said, you know, the, you, you're, you, your business will be directly impacted by this case. And so they are now what are called intervener defendants, and they've really been pretty lockstep with the federal government in terms of their strategies, um, including the most recent... uh, Remember I told you about that little interlocutory appeal that's happening now. Um, The federal government filed, uh, requested that on March 7th, and the fossil fuel industry came in, I think it was March 10th, um, and said, we want to file, we want to agree with that, and we would also like to see an interlocutory appeal. So that's the role of the fossil fuel industry trade associations in the young people's case. James Coleman, you are very interested in in politics. Uh, What do you think about that close alignment between the industry, the fossil fuel industry, and the federal government and how that pertains to, say, elections and funding? I think it's very dangerous to have large corporations who can fund millions of dollars towards their favorable candidates rather than have lobbying based solely on their constituents. A single person can probably maybe give $50 or $10 to uh, a politician that they like. Fossil fuel companies can pull in millions of dollars. And what do you think about broadly the more, uh, more broadly the health of American democracy, given the recent uh, election that we just went through? 
I think the Electoral College is really flawed in that um, with the election of Donald Trump by the Electoral College, but with the popular vote won by Hillary Clinton, similarly in 2000 when Al Gore got the popular vote, but he still lost to Bush. You're just joining us. We're talking about climate and politics at Climate One. That's James Coleman, a high school student in San Francisco. Our other guests are Lou Helmuth, Deputy Director of Our Children's Trust, and Karina McWilliams, a high school student from Eugene, Oregon. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Karina McWilliams, your thoughts on the health of uh, democracy. You are someone who goes to city council meetings regularly. Uh, Your thoughts on the health of American democracy, which underlines what we're talking about here in terms of federal action on climate change. I completely agree with James. I think uh, there's a long way, we're a long ways away from being um, an equal democracy where everyone has an equal say. I think there's also a huge problem with um, voting. I don't think, you know, marginalized groups don't um, have the same amount of, of say that, you know, say, you know, uh, straight white men have, like, in the uh, democratic election. Um, uh, and I, I also think that people aren't using the democratic system uh, fully to its advantage. I think that, you know, there are so many ways that you can plug in and make your voice heard just by, like, you know, talking to your local politicians or sending an email or, you know, calling someone or, like, you know, even going to your city council uh, meetings. Yeah, I think there's a lot more that we could be doing that um, people weren't doing enough of prior to the election. So we've been talking about the courts. I'd like to talk about the streets a little bit. Uh, James Coleman, uh, there's been student protests. A lot of high school students walked out after the election, uh, ran across hundreds of them in the streets with their teachers and uh, even supervisors. Uh, were you allowed to do that in South San Francisco? I think you, had a, you kind of marched just around the school. They didn't want to let you out, right? Yeah, our uh, <laughs> school administrators did not allow us to walk out of school because it's technically <laughs> legal. But we were allowed to protest. Um, we had a little protest. We had signs. Uh, during lunch at the quad, and about maybe 100 to 200 people participated and walked around chanting. What do you think that accomplishes? I think that really told the administrators, as well as other students, um, the sentiment that we felt deep down and how we, were, how we felt cheated that Donald Trump won the presidency. And Karina McWilliams, you work inside the political system, going to city council hearings, et cetera. What do you think about protests in the street? Does that just show? Does it accomplish anything? It accomplishes so much. Um, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot you can do within the democratic system, but it, you can't say everything you want to. You know, you don't have, um, like, you're not going to go in and tell off your city councilors that, like, they're doing a bad job and just yell at them. I think um, marches especially show power in numbers, um, and I think that sometimes politicians don't listen to you if you go in and uh, testify at city council meetings or whatever just because you're one person, um, but if, you, if you're backed up by like hundreds or thousands of people, then it really it, it shows that you've got a lot of force behind you and you're worth listening to. So I think both are really valid um, ways of expressing yourself and your opinions. Lou Helmuth, the courts in uh, social movements have played a, a key role. So paint the picture for how the, the co- what you hope the courts are doing here on climate is similar to what they've done in the past on other issues. Yeah, you know, if you look at um, American social justice movements over time, um, it seems like there is often sort of a convergence of a a political movement, you know, the kind of stuff that that James and Karina are talking about, people in the streets 
demonstrating, making their collective voice known and understood on a subject, and then also a court coming in with some sort of macro-constitutional kind of affirmance um, or acceptance of that public sentiment that, that James was talking about even at the high school. Um, and so if you think like of the civil rights movement, when there were marches in the South that were broadcast to the North, it started bringing people from the North to the South, and there became this big street organizing, street movement, as, um, as Greg is, is referencing. And then it gave the courts the opportunity to issue a, a constitutional pronouncement in Brown versus Board of Education that said everyone is entitled to equal educational opportunity. So, you know, we, we, find, we, we saw this with gay marriage recently when, you know, there was a lot of back and forth, you know, is gay marriage legal, is it not legal, back and forth, and courts were doing different things. But ultimately there became a, a you know, a public acceptance of the fact that gay marriage is fine. And then shortly thereafter, we had a constitutional pronouncement from the Supreme Court that it's a constitutional right. So the convergence of the public movement and the public will and the public sentiment, I love your word, James, um, and the court pronouncement of constitutional principles is what really often makes the big shift in social justice issues. Green and Vic Williams, you participated in a project uh, protest with an organization called 350. Where, uh, tell us about that, where there's a, the oil drop involved, I think. Yeah, so that was about the COP21 conference in Paris. Uh-huh. Um, uh, it was the People's Climate March, I think, uh, December, about a year ago. And what we did was we had about four or 500 people um, dress all in uh, yellow, um, and they came to the march, and then they formed this shape of an oil drop, and they covered their heads with um, black plastic bags. And then they had this drone flying above and filming the entire thing, and then they took off the black plastic bag um, to reveal their yellow, and then they moved to form the shape of a sun. So it was this huge artistic thing of um, off, off oil and onto renewable, and it was really cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to go to our lightning round. We'll ask a series of quick uh, yes or no uh, uh, questions of our guests at Climate One, James Coleman, Lou Helmuth, and Karina McWilliams. First for James Coleman, um, yes or no, would you date a really cute climate denier? If she was open to changing her mind, yes. <laughs> Good answer. Um, Karina McWilliams, whenever, I don't know if you're dating. When you do, Karina McWilliams, would you date someone whose mom or dad works for a fossil fuel company? Um, I, I don't know. I have a lot of friends who rebel against their parents all the time. So it, <laughs> if that person uh, chose not to work for a fossil fuel company, I'd probably date them. <laughs> <laughs> Lou Helmuth, yes or no, you have a climate denier in your family. Yes. James Coleman, do you think people who work for oil and coal companies are intentionally trying to hurt you and the planet? No. Lou Helmuth, many people who think they are healing the climate are really just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Somewhat. Uh, also for Lou Helmuth, you can have empathy for a person who spent their entire career working in a fossil fuel company to earn a living and provide energy to run the economy. Yes. 
James Coleman, uh, if the suit about students suing the federal government is made into a movie, what actor do you think should be in it? Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Karina McWilliams, last question. What actor or actress do you think should be in the movie about young people going to court to protect their constitutional right to a healthy climate? Tina Fey. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. That ends our lightning round. Let's give a round for them getting through that. <laughs> and now, here's a Climate One Minute. As a food systems coordinator with the Community Alliance with Family Farmers, Heather Frombach works with local farmers to get healthier foods into California schools. But often, she says, the impetus for change has to come from the students themselves. At a Climate One event, one young audience member asked the question, where do we start? Start with your club. Start asking questions about where the food is coming from. You can, you can ask, you know, you guys are students, you go here. Um, you are, you're kind of customers of the system here. You can go ask uh, the people who are working, who are serving you food at lunch and say, like, how would I learn more about where this food is coming from? Or, you know, like, with your environmental club, you can say, that you want to meet with an administrator and just have a conversation and say, like, we want to learn more about this. We want to see what we're already doing well and what we can do better and how we can, you know, support it. So you can have a survey where you can take a survey of, of your fellow students then say, like, you know, how do you feel about the food? What can be done better? And you can use that as a basis and take it to the administration and say, we're doing some good things already, but here's how we could do better. So just kind of, you know, starting to have those conversations and realizing that you can is definitely the first step. That's Heather Frombach of the Community Alliance with Family Farmers. She joined us in 2014. Now back to Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, James Coleman, what do you do around the house to walk the walk in, in your personal life to reduce your, both your water consumption, important here in the West, as well as your carbon footprint? What do you do? Um, at ACE, we learned that often our diet does impact the climate. Um, and where when we eat meat, that meat is grown on farms, and those farm animals do produce um, methane and carbon dioxide that gets released in the air. And so at home, um, I'm not ready to be vegan yet, but I am trying to reduce my carbon footprint in what I eat. Karina McWilliams, what do you do in your life to uh, reduce your impact? Reduce my impact? I'll bike and walk to school when I can. Um, <laughs> I'll take shorter showers. Yeah, you mean like every, like everyday things? Yeah, what, what can an average person do? This climate thing seems so big and it requires big governments. Like what can people, it always seems like individual action. What can you do that matters? What can you do that matters? Just go to a march or like call, you know, <laughs> call your legislator. Don't um, take a shower, go to a march. Right? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, Got yeah. it. And just plug into whatever's going on in your school or community because really, yeah, people are just looking for support and people to ally with. Yeah. Lou Helmuth, what do you do in your personal life to walk the walk? Um, I really think about everything that I do through this lens. Um, I don't always make the best choice about that. I still fly more than I would like to, but I have definitely cut that back. I am always thinking when I'm about to step out of the house, you know, am I going to get in the car? Am I going to take the bus? You know, so I'm, when I'm purchasing things in, in a store, I'm looking at where are they made out of what materials are they made? Do I really need this? Right? So the, I think the one thing that I'm doing that I think everybody can do is just be aware that 
almost every choice that you make has some, some impact on our climate system. And so just to be aware, if you do that, then every day you can make little adjustments and evaluate your overall carbon footprint so that you can make big reductions over time. Uh, let's meet another youth group uh, called Heirs to Our Oceans. They're making a movie and trying to make their entire project go viral in the process. We recently caught up with them as they were making a presentation at an environmental youth forum in San Francisco. Here are the Heirs to Our Oceans. I'm Neve, and I'm an heir to our oceans. I'm Seth Weinfield, and I'm from Heirs to Our Oceans. We're a group of homeschoolers ages 9 to 17. And we are making a movie and a movement to show the world that we don't have to wait till we're an adult to start like changing our path for our lifetimes for positive change. Each one of us founding heirs has a focus area that we go into the science about it and teach people about it. Hi, I'm Charlie and I'm 12 years old. My focus area is coral. As waters warm, there's more and more algae blooms. And that is creating a shadow overhead of these corals. We go to schools, we do beach cleanups, we go to activist outings. I and some of my other team members went to Palau in December of 2016, and there we formed a Palauan chapter. We also have beta chapters starting in Hawaii, Northern California, Southern California, Oregon, and even Derby, Kansas. Adults may still keep with a closed mind, but if we teach the kids, then this next generation will be aware, and they can teach their kids, and then we can get this crisis solved. I know that this generation can make a difference. We're not going to fail. We can't. We have four of them right here. Um, yeah, I get choked up watching that. Uh, those are middle schoolers. Karina McWilliams, what do you think of when you see kids like that? I'm so inspired. Yeah. Um, everywhere I go, <laughs> these guys are here. I was at Power Shift <laughs> a few weeks ago. They were in Eugene, where I live. Yeah, they're awesome. <laughs> James Coleman, uh, there's inspiration. Um, we've had other people here from our Children's Trust and others who say that what's happening with climate makes them think about whether they will be, you know, far away from you, for you, whether they will be a parent. Do you ever think about whether climate will affect your decision to be a parent? Um, I think it will. Um, like, if I'm going to bring a child into this planet, will it be a healthy planet? Will they have the rights to clean water? Can they experience clean air? Can they go outside on the beach without being afraid of oil. These are things that we should think about, and I do not want to bring a child into a planet that is dying. Karina? Um, I kind of agree with James. Like, you know, if, if my child isn't going to have clean air to breathe, then, you know, is it, is it going to be worth it? Is it going to be, like, doing that person a favor? Um, yeah. I think that's what that's kind of the mindset that everyone should be getting into. That it, it's your children that are going to be having having to deal with the effects of climate change, um, not just like you know people five hundred years from now. It's happening today, and like you know, and tomorrow, and then like you know, in ten years, um, it's just getting worse and worse. And I think um, that's a it's a really real question. Like you know, your 
you are going to have to deal with these effects. Uh, yeah. It's not abstract or far. It's not just polar, polar bears and Pacific <laughs> islands. Uh, we're talking about climate change at Climate One. That's Karina McWilliams, a high school student in Eugene, Oregon. We also have San Francisco high school student James Coleman and Lou Helmuth from Our Children's Trust. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, James Coleman, what's one of your proudest moments of environmental activism? I'd say speaking out at the Stand Up for Science rally at the AGO conference. American Geophysical Union, huge conference of tens of thousands of scientists at Moscone Center in San Francisco, and you stood up in front of them. Pretty brave moment. Yeah, that was my uh, first real moment of public speaking. I was extremely nervous, heart beating on my chest, but I got through it, and I see it as a real milestone in my life. Um, I'm an aspiring scientist, and as scientists, we see that they stick to their labs, they stick to their science, they're not really out in the political world. But right now we're seeing that politics and science are merging together, and that scientists have to be a voice in our society. They have to get out, they have to tell us what the facts are and how we should use our policy to, to fight climate change. Karina McWilliams, one of your proudest moments. Um, I don't know if I could pinpoint one proud moment, but I know one moment that stands out, stands out to me is when I was with um, 350 Eugene and some um, employees from our Children's Trust at this pizza place before uh, a city council meeting one night, I think, or maybe it was in March. But um, one woman asked me, uh, how, where, do you, where do you find this braveness to do what you're doing and like speak in front of everyone and put yourself out there? And I think I replied with... Um, it's like my responsibility. And I think that was the moment that I really realized that like, I'm not doing this because, you know, I, I like, you know, being loud or talking a lot or like, you know, just participating in marches. I'm doing it because like I need to, because I don't have a choice. Um, and I think more than just being proud, that was just a defining moment of um, my entire like career in, in climate activism. Let's give it up for these guys doing something really hard. <laughs> Not here because, because it's easy. Karina McWilliams, you talked earlier about talking to a skeptic or denier. How do you do that in a way that they'll hear you? Um, you you kind of just got to reason, like, reason with them. Um, I know that sounds like a little difficult, but if you're talking to someone who lives in rural Oregon, like... Um, you know, they're experiencing climate change, like they're experiencing drought. So, you know, you've got to kind of get down to like <laughs> their level and just say, um, so you're experiencing drought, right? Like it's, it's drier than it has been in years and it's not like getting better. So those are the direct effects of climate change and you are experiencing them. It is a thing. Um, yeah. You and just got to relate it to them. Lou Helmuth, you have a denier in your family. How do you talk to that family member? Well, um, I have several, um, and some I speak with and about this subject, and some I don't. Um, <laughs> you know, you got to choose your battles a little bit. Um, but when I'm talking with some, you know, I, th there is a hopeful side to this in, in my mind, and that is that we do have the, the, the technical and economic and scientific abilities to fix this crisis. Um, and so there's there's hope that we can achieve and it, it can 
It can, can spur technological innovation. It will drive economic prosperity. Um, it will fix a lot of the crises that a lot of people are facing, some climate deniers are facing. You know, their economic issues can be addressed, the consequences that they're facing relative to the, the experiences of climate change that they're facing when they lose their homes and stuff. If we can come from a hopeful place and fix this problem, I think it can bring people into a place where they can hear about the crisis in a little bit of a different way. So uh, I haven't converted anyone yet, but that's my approach. No one ever died from a solar spill. Um, <laughs> we're going to go to our audience questions and invite you to go to the microphone over there where our producer, Jane Ann, is. Um, so please go there now. We have 16 minutes left. and love to hear your dynamic, engaging. And for the young people in the audience, you just heard from two young people who have difficulty. This is not natural for them speaking in public. So if you're a little bit shy, I encourage you to challenge yourself, get up there and, and ask a question. I was uh, wondering, it, it's, this is a children's trust, right? And you guys have the right to a clean environment. And usually with a trust, there are trustees who have a duty to protect that trust. Uh, who are the trustees that you're trying to talk to? Lou Helmuth. Yeah, in the federal lawsuit, they are very definitely the, the federal government. The federal government is the trustee who has the responsibility to make sure that they manage this limited resource so that it is available for the present day beneficiaries, all of us in this room, and the future generation beneficiaries. It's a lot like a monetary trust. You've got to make sure you have enough left for everybody today and tomorrow. So the trustee is the government and the beneficiaries are all of us and future generations. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Uh, my name is Chris Rodriguez, and I'm here on behalf of the Green Academy at Abraham Lincoln High School. Uh, Mr. Coleman, you mentioned that uh, what we do now as far as our contribution to uh, CO2 emissions and stuff in that regard, uh, you said that we won't feel those effects till like about 40 years from now. Uh, I wanted to know uh, what's uh, in place, or is there anything in place in regards to that? So, James Coleman, the, the lag and the carbon we put up and the impacts it causes. Um, right now, we are very threatened on this issue. There's, the only agreement that I'd say is in place to stop it would be the Paris Agreement. But even if we have that agreement by every single country, it's still not enough. And with the other cops uh, coming up throughout the years, we need to fight for stronger stronger pushes from every single country, not just the U.S., but everywhere. All right, thank you. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hi, um, I'm a senior in high school. Uh, Mr. Helmuth, I was wondering, uh, you organized 20 plaintiffs from around the country. How necessarily did you do that, and how do you suggest that youths organize in order to take on the federal government uh, when they don't necessarily have the resources or the know-how to Get, that, uh, get to that stage? Well, one great way for young people to become a part of this lawsuit is to join Earth Guardians, which is a nonprofit organization who is one of the plaintiffs. So there are 21 young people who are plaintiffs. Earth Guardians, the organization, 
is a plaintiff. And also Dr. James Hansen is a, a plaintiff as guardian for all future generations. So if you join Earth Guardians, and they've got what they call our crews all around the globe of young people taking on local action in their communities, they support you, they, you know, they help you to, to, to advance those actions, you actually become you know, a, a, a quasi-member of the lawsuit and also can undertake you know, local action in your community that you can band together with other young people to take on. Karina is, is part of that group. Let's welcome to Climate One. Hi, my name is uh, Kevin Huo. Um, I'm part of Students on Ice. Um, you know, there are many youth in the room today, and you know, we have wonderful leaders on stage today. Um, you know, could you talk about one life-defining moment um, that you know you wake up to every day and say that's the reason why I want to you know help save this planet? Lou Helmuth. I know you didn't think I'd be the guy answering it. <laughs> the thing that I wake up to and that drives me every day are people like this, all the young people that are in this room right now that are taking this charge as, as you all are doing. It's incredibly inspiring. It's the most rewarding work I've ever done. Um, and it's because of the passion and, and brilliance that you bring to the effort. For me, it was certainly going to the Arctic and having that life-changing experience. And that's what caused me to create Climate One. I think you heard James talk about Dakota Access Pipeline. Anything else either of you'd like to add? I would say, um, for me, I wouldn't say there's like one life-defining moment. I, I know I mentioned the, that um, thing at the pizza shop before, but I think what drives me is kind of making the relation between um, getting involved in the climate activism movement for both the, you know, be- c- preserving the beauty and, you know, just the awesomeness of nature and, you know, the environment in which I live in, which I've grown up in. Like, you know, I've I, I love, like, Oregon's old-growth forests, um, and I don't want to see those go away, but then also recognizing that climate change isn't just, like, affecting nature and, like, animals. Um, it's also affecting, like, the well-being of the entire world. And, like, you know, you can't, you can't have a functional society without, like, a stable climate or a stable atmosphere or, you know, clean water or clean air. Like, it... it just yeah so for me recognizing that it's like a global problem and an intersectional problem next question welcome to climate one thank you um i'm elliot i'm also with earth to oceans and to what james previously said uh, i'm actually learning a bit about ocean acidification so for lou um, today, Donald Trump announced that he's going to reevaluate and reduce the fuel economy requirements for cars made in the U.S., and uh, that is hard for me as a young person, but do you think it helps the Juliana case against the administration? Do I think that that action by President Trump helps the case? Um, in, in kind of an inverted way, it does. It, it shows very clearly the wrong track that our government is on. The, it's the opposite direction that we need to be going. So it makes your case that much clearer about what the government isn't doing and, in fact, what it is affirmatively doing. It's taking a conscious step to reduce the, the, the mileage requirements. So I think it, in, it helps, Elliot. Those fuel efficiency standards are one of the most important things done in the last 20 years on climate. Let's go to our next question. Hi, I'm Lomax Turner from Terra High School in Santa Fe, California. Um, this is a question for everyone. Do you think the Obama administration did enough 
uh, to acknowledge the climate change crisis and what is your current reaction to uh, the Trump administration's um, yeah, reaction to the climate change crisis? James Coleman, you're a budding political scientist. I think the Obama, the Obama administration is obviously better than the Republicans and what they're doing, but I don't think they did nearly enough. They, Obama could have spoke out against the Dakota Access Pipeline months before he did. And he could have tried to ban fracking, tried to speak out more against the issues. And there's always more that can be done with him. But nonetheless, he was good, and I am satisfied with what he did. Karina McWilliams? Um, I agree with James. I think that I, I personally think that Obama didn't do nearly enough in his um, uh, presidency to combat climate change. You know, he kind of just did that campaign in his last six months of office uh, where he went around Alaska and, like, uh, just kind of really drew attention to climate change. It was kind of just too little too late. But now, after the Trump presidency, I think that, you know, on one hand, you know, just the shock of the election was exactly what the United States needed, and especially the youth needed to really get off their feet and realize that something was wrong and something needed to happen quickly. And I think it really lit a fire under a lot of people. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hi, my name is Molly Madden. I'm part of the Marin School of Environmental Leadership. Um, I have a question for Mr. Helmuth. I think it's great what you're doing. Other than having your 21 plaintiffs' voices heard, what other advocacy actions are you taking to the government to give them knowledge or ask them about climate change? Uh, well, uh, great question. We have, um, you know, I'll remind you of your civics lessons. Um, we have this federal lawsuit ongoing. We have a number of uh, state lawsuits also ongoing. Um, we work with young people to... Um, advanced climate recovery ordinances in their own local communities, so federal, state, local. We're also working with some global domestic, in some global domestic jurisdictions, so other nations as well, to bring these similar types of constitutional and public trust claims seeking science-based, comprehensive climate recovery planning in other nations. So we're, we're doing those things, and, and as well, a big part of what we do is try to give all the young people that are involved with our work um, public platforms and media platforms to tell their stories, um, and so to help educate the public about the fact that there is a constitutional right to a stable climate system, and that we can fix this problem if we act soon. So those are some of the other things that we're working on. Lou Helmuth is the uh, Deputy Director of our Children's Trust. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our next question. Hello, I'm Isabella Farfan, and I'm from Marin School of Environmental Leadership. And my question is for everybody. And do you think uh, local change is more effective when you're starting out with this climate thing? <laughs> or Sorry. going to a higher power, like what you're doing with the government? Karina McWilliams. Uh, so I firmly believe that all all change, you know, starts on the ground. Um, yeah, grassroots organizations are are really the way to go. Um, you know, because I think that power comes in numbers, and you know, how are you going to get numbers if you just go, you know, write a letter to the president where you know you're just going to get like a, a standardized letter back? Um, yeah. Let's go to our next question, Climate One. Hi, my name is Kelliana Huey, and I'm from the Alliance for Climate Education. And um, this is a question for all of you guys. What battles do you think climate fighters have to win 
for the better, the future? What battles? Lou Helmuth, I'm going to add on to that a little bit that I've heard the founder of your organization say that environmentalism is a game of whack-a-mole. Stop this pipeline, declare success, yay, stop Keystone, but it just the, the oil flows to trains or other pipelines. Stop Dakota Access Pipeline, that may feel like a success, but that oil goes, another pipeline gets built against someone else, across someone else's aquifer, that it doesn't, environmentalism doesn't address the systemic issues, which is what you're trying to do in this case. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, environmental law historically has been a little whack-a-mole. Um, the environmental statutes of the '70s, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, are all designed to allow people to challenge individual projects, and so you can, you know, <laughs> sue that factory on the river for dumping pollution into the river. Um, and you can probably have that limited somewhat, but it doesn't take into account the whole ecosystem. What's upstream? What's downstream? Where's it going? What's its impact on the oceans that it's being dumped into after it gets through the river? So there hasn't been this holistic opportunity in environmental law to challenge the systemic problem. Um, and that's where these constitutional provisions come in and these public trust provisions come in that aren't about individual projects. It's about our right to a whole ecosystem that is sustainable and healthy. So that's a little bit of the, the change game that's happening here. And so um, in response to your question, I think you know, I, I really think that this sort of macro-systemic change that we're trying to accomplish, forcing our entire federal government to behave in accordance with natural law so as not to destroy our futures, is a necessary component. Otherwise, we're stuck in the political branches, the executive and the legislature, and we've seen that, you know, they've had 50 years of knowledge of exactly what's going on, and the result has been, as a result of money in politics, the perpetuation of the fossil fuel industry. So I think you know this macro solution is a necessary one. We have to wrap up quickly. Uh, James Coleman, what gives you hope? Um, an overall vision that four years from now, we will have a planet that's healthy for our children to live in. Karina McWilliams, hope. Um, everyone else involved in the climate movement who uh, encourages each other and me. Lou Helmuth. Inspired young people. We've been talking about youth activism in the courts and in the streets at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests have been James Coleman, a senior at San Francisco, South San Francisco High School, Lou Helmuth, Deputy Director of Our Children's Trust, and Karina McWilliams, a junior at South Eugene High School in Oregon. Let's give them a big round of applause. <laughs> Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.